Hey guys, SRE Live Podcast is back with your host, Sergey Ross. And today I'm here with Portland Helmick, a pro storyteller who did it all. She worked on TV in just about every dimension. A TV host on talk shows, news, documentaries, magazine series, reality television, corporate videos, and a lot more. She's a producer, writer, and a voiceover talent. Portland, great to have you. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So I will start with this. What, what are some of the exciting projects you're doing right now or planning? I'm working on two projects right now. And the first one is brand new for me. I've done a tremendous amount of writing. I've written for magazines, newspapers, television, film, podcasts. I've written articles. I've written short form, long form, but I've never written a book. So I am actually writing a full length book right now. And I'm, I've written the first seven chapters and now I'm just writing the summary and the introduction. I've just got those two pieces left and it will be done. And it'll be about 250 pages or so. And it's about a topic that, you know, that's the thing when you work as a, a producer in television or film, you're always becoming an expert on whatever subject you're yeah. endeavoring to get involved in. And this is about something I don't really know anything about, but it's about virtual leadership. So today, so many of us are working at home. We're not working in the office. So how do you lead teams or companies when you're not face-to-face? That's what it's about, virtual leadership. So I'm, I'm writing that book. And then I'm also working with a colleague of mine with whom I also worked on Stranglers, the podcast. Right. She and I are working on a documentary film about global education. And we're looking at innovative educational paradigms around the world that are attempting to educate some of the most disadvantaged and marginalized people in the world. That's what we're working on. These are great stories. Powerful. Now, yeah, very have, difficult to shoot though during COVID. I can't imagine how you would do that. Like, I absolutely can't. Especially you're doing high, like long, big production. There's like a few cameras. I don't know. I, don't, I think it's it's well, hard. Well, we're actually not in a lot of ways right now. We're just gathering some interviews, and because it's so hard to get into some of these countries, we're hiring crews in the countries, and we're doing the interviews. We're conducting them over Zoom, but we're getting people in the country to actually do the shooting. But we're we're not going out and like shooting B-roll and things like that right now. It's just too hard. Right. But do you, I've heard, I've spoken with one film director a couple of years ago, well, just before COVID started. And he would, he told me that they would, for certain guests, they would ship these little kits with an iPhone and a little camera and a little mic, not expensive, but little kit that the guests would use to film themselves and look a little bit better. If it's a conference call, for example, or if it's a Zoom call and it'll, it'll connect. And so it looks better. It sounds better. Are you doing any of those things or... I'm familiar with what you're talking about, but will admit that the technology of my industry is not something that I'm very well skilled at, but I do know what you're talking about. So yes, I'm actually also working on a series. It's a corporate video series where I'm interviewing people about IT accessibility for the disabled. So when people are trying to use the internet or get on their computers, how are you using it if you're blind or visually impaired? So with some of those people, we are sending them an external mic when I'm interviewing them. And uh, I do know what you're talking about, like sending people an iPhone or something like that. I haven't done that so much. And I would say with a documentary film, I mean, unless we were just, I could see doing that if we just wanted like, I don't know, know, 30 seconds of footage of someone making their breakfast at home or just a little sound bite. I would not use that um, to to gather a lot of footage for a documentary film that's gonna be widely distributed. Right, but it's also, I feel like it's also really, 
difficult if you're if you're trying to get like a talking head for like a documentary i don't know that's it's gonna still look weird it's probably gonna be yes. better than zoom but it's still gonna be a marginal gain yes there are reasons that you pay people big bucks to shoot and frame <laughs> interviews for you because they know what they're doing and they know how to light them and so many people just don't know how to do that right when they're shooting at home and you know they're Very on difficult. youtube and it's, it's terrible yeah but anyway that is not my area of expertise. So. And we're not going to get into it. We're not going to get into it. Portland, <laughs> yeah. uh, you, I, I looked at your LinkedIn. You've been writing officially on LinkedIn from 19, since 1998. Is that, <laughs> that's like, that's like a long time. Well, you just revealed my age. Oh my God. No, I didn't. Yes. I didn't. We didn't. No, you didn't. But yeah. yes, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm up there. I'm getting up there. How do you, how do you find your, I'm always curious because I do tend to write quite a lot too as it's it's weird because you go on video to do more video and you think oh i'm not going to write as much because i'm better on video and you tend to write more which is we will get into that but how do you find your evolution as a writer you started writing scripts you started writing for uh for for tv and then it's a long time and i'm curious like how how did your writing evolve how do you when you are writing for a certain project, how does it change now? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I have been asked that before. And I always feel like I want to come up with a really good answer. And I don't know that I have one. I would say that writing comes naturally to me. It's something that I, it was just easy for me to do when I was young. I mean, it's interesting to me. I have a bachelor's degree in acting and I have a master's degree in teaching English as a second language, but I never studied writing ever, ever. I've never studied it. And what I make so much of my living doing is, is just that. So it's mm -hmm. something that comes naturally. What I can say about how does it change? Well, obviously, if you're writing a book or you're writing an article, you, you can afford to have longer sentences. It, when I was writing for the podcast Stranglers, we we're writing an audio documentary. So you really had to keep the language tight and sentences were much shorter. And of course, in an audio documentary, we were really having to use a lot of descriptive language to bring the listener into the scene because they're not seeing anything. So we were having to describe the light coming through the window or the sound of someone's footsteps. Of course, you can use some of these sound effects as well, but we were, it was very descriptive language. When I'm writing for television, the pictures are telling some of the story. So I don't have to be quite as descriptive because the pictures are telling, are, are doing a lot of the work. Uh, but in both television and podcasts, I would say that the writing, the sentences are gonna be shorter and tighter. And again, if you're writing a book, then you, you have the luxury of slightly longer sentences. But even now writing this book that I'm writing, I still notice that shorter is better. Right. It's just more elegant. Writing is more elegant when, when there are fewer words. It's more impactful. So I will write the book, you know, I'll write, I'll write a paragraph and then I go back through and I just try to look at how many different words can I take out? And invariably, the more words I take out, the better it is. And I would say that when you're producing a film too, mm -hmm. or you're creating a podcast, the more that like, go for it create your, your tableau, make it big and beautiful. But the more that you can take out in the editing, the better it's going to be. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's amazing how much you can improve the second draft. And uh, Stephen Pressfield talks about that, that feeling that you should resist of writing and editing at the same time. 
he says, look, the first draft is you write as fast as you can and you totally just take your judgment and put it in the box. And you imagine of you, you being chased by a monster and you have to get it out in the next couple of minutes, just turn off your brain. And then the second draft, do whatever you want go nuts. Yeah. I think that's a really good uh, piece of advice. Uh, talking about different drafts. When I was working on the podcast stranglers, we had 12 different episodes. The first episode, we were obviously just getting our bearings. We didn't quite know how we were going to tell this story. That first episode had 18 drafts. 18 I, drafts. It, I, so I listened to Stranglers and I was shocked at how much work went into it just because I, I, I did videos, I did podcasts, I did scripting. It's basically, it's like a script for a movie or a documentary, yeah. which is incredibly tight. It's very, it's like really, really very specific, very short sentences. And it's actually worse. What you mentioned is that you also had to do script description, which also had to be very on point because you, do, you don't have the visual. So it becomes a documentary, which is, and it's double the work because you only work with the audio. And then you have all those effects in there, but the complexity, like literally 10 seconds of that, of that audio is, is immense amount of work. It was an immense amount of work and it definitely was not just me, right? I was one of the co-producers and one of the co-writers and I was the host, but I worked with a group of nine people and John Delore was uh, one of the producers on it and the sound designer. And he is just remarkable. I mean, so unbelievably talented. And there were two great executive producers and the senior, produ uh, senior producer, Sharon Mahihi, uh, wonderful, just fabulously talented people. So whenever you make a, something that's that well done, it's never just one person, right? It's a lot of people putting in a lot of time. And after I did that, I had gained so much overtime when I was working at Northern Light Productions producing that podcast that I got an entire month off. I had, I had accumulated that much overtime that I got an entire month off and I went to Costa Rica to a yoga retreat because I was absolutely exhausted. <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons, Portland, right? That these shows are never long or they don't usually last 300 episodes. Like these are like the opposite spectrum of Joe Rogan to our like random stuff. Yeah. Like, so much work, so much production. And it's, it, they, they tend to be like a ton of, a ton of costs to produce, uh, to finance, but then you can't, it, it, it it's, you have to make them short. Like it, it's, it's a, not a lot of episodes in many ways. Yours, your series. Your series, Stranglers specifically. Oh, like, Stranglers. Yes. 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 Sorry so that like I missed what you were saying there. No, no. It's, you have like 12 episodes or you have 20 episodes, but it doesn't, it's rarely those, those narratives, narrative style podcasts rarely go to hundreds and, yeah. Oh my God. Absolutely. Because you would have absolutely no life. John Delore had a baby <laughs> in the middle of that. And I don't think he even saw the baby for the first few weeks. <laughs> yeah. Why do you, um, what are the, why do you picked, why did you pick the audio versus doing a documentary in a traditional way? Well, the documentary film had already been done. So I was working at this documentary film company called Northern Light Productions, which I just mentioned. And they had, before I started working there, produced a documentary film called Confessions of the Boston Strangler for Investigation Discovery. And it was the most highly rated documentary film on Investigation Discovery in 2014. So they'd already done the film. Investigation Discovery came back to them and said, podcast, right? This is 2014, right? This is almost... 10 years ago, podcasts are getting really popular. Serial had come out. 
you know, we could go back and tell this one story. It's episode five of Stranglers about Charles Terry. We could go back and tell that story that never made it into the film because they only had so much time. So that was really the impetus for Stranglers was really to tell the Charles Terry story, which is, you know, this other potential suspect. Um, and so we told that in episode five and that's the reason that it was done, but they had already made the film. What's more fun for you to work on on video, like video project or audio project is just as fun? Mm. You know, the truth is I've done more I've, because I did so much television. I've done much more of sitting in the editing room, putting together a story that has visuals. And so I think I'm just more accustomed to that. But I have to say, I mean, Stranglers was that was extremely um extremely well done so uh, but overall i think i'm i think i prefer the visual yeah i think it's just a little bit more it's just more dynamic right you have yeah. the audio and the visual so you've got two ways that the story is coming at you and you've done so many things in your career talk shows news documentaries magazine like everything like there's a massive spectrum was there a certain plan behind it or like i'm going to try everything i can everything i can or you know there's this sounds exciting let me try that <laughs> is there a plan behind it no i mean i think i just i i've known that i i i am multi-skilled as a storyteller meaning that i feel comfortable writing i'm good at organizing the story um i'm good at you know i have a, a D decent voice. I can tell the story. I went to acting school. I feel comfortable in front of the camera. So I've always felt that I can tell it from, from any angle. Um, but was there a plan? No, I, I don't, I don't think there was a plan. I think I just would take the next opportunity that was in front of me. And for a long time, to be honest, Sergey, I freelanced. And when you freelance, you kind of just, you know, you, you take what's in front of you. Yes, I always wanted to have my own TV show, What's the Alternative, which is something that I produced and hosted in from 2006 to 2008. That was always like a big goal of mine. And I, it's amazing that I was able to do it. But leading up to it, I would just look for any opportunity that I could find to do, to tell stories about health, healing and wellness and alternative medicine, because I was really interested in that. So if I could work with the uh, Channel 5 News, which I did for a while, and just get on a few stories about alternative forms of healing or natural health and wellness, that was satisfying for me. And I would sort of build up my quote unquote reel as I was doing that. And then I worked with the Comcast network for a while and I did some, uh, I was hosting a, a show for them. I was filling in as the host for Barry Nolan when he wasn't there. And I would try to get people on the show that I could interview about these topics. And so it just helped build my resume, so, so to speak, if that makes sense. And then I was working with the Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health, and I did an interview podcast for them. And I wrote for them for a very long time. And all of those things kind of built up that, that resume. But for the most part, this is a long way of answering your question. Mostly I would take the next interesting opportunity that came up. And if it was television or film or a podcast or writing an article or acting in a, you know, on a film, in a film for a day or two, I would just do it because it's work. <laughs> yeah. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. And, and if you pursue in, which, which is very clearly, you are about the story. So it, when you, when it's about the story and, and you are personally interested in, then and if you're interested in more than just hosting, then there's so many, so much work to do. Why not? Why not yeah, exactly. That? I mean, really to try to make your, I mean, more power to people who can make their living full-time as an on-camera host, as a talent. Wonderful. If you can do it. I never found a way to do that full-time. It's been great when I've had those opportunities. I absolutely love it, but 
I've always had other skills. And so writing and producing, I've just done so much of it because there's, there's more of that work to be found. Right. Why do you feel, why do you feel it's hard to just purely do TV hosting? Is this one of the reasons because TV viewership's going down YouTube, TikTok, everything. And there's like, there's only a fine amount of hosts needed. Very, very few. And these days, I mean, I'm a dinosaur in this industry these days, right? It's all about whether or not you're an influencer and how many followers you have on Instagram. And I'm just not someone who is much of a self-promoter and it's prop, you know, that's partially because I'm older, it might be a little bit my, my generation, but I think that's what's part of what's happened. Right. I mean, there were, there aren't as many magazine shows as there used to be. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, when I was growing up, there were a lot of magazine shows. There were more opportunities for people who were just general hosts. These days, you have to sort of be an expert in a specific genre, and then you have to have a following. And if you have a following, then maybe someone will, you know, find you, or they'll be more apt to want to hire you because you have this, you know, you, you're an interior designer or you're an expert on baking or you're an expert on gardening. And I'm really not an expert on anything. I'm just really good at asking questions. <laughs> and that's not really enough anymore. You have to really be an expert in something. <laughs> well, health and wellness, health and wellness. That could yeah, be. That's the thing. It's, an, it's a good point that you bring that up. I, 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 I know more about that topic than the general person. But I'm not an acupuncturist. I'm not an herbalist. I'm not a chiropractor. I'm not a naturopathic doctor. I'm not a functional medicine expert, blah, blah, blah. And if I were, that might have been an easier sell. I was out in California, Los Angeles for a few years, trying to get another television show off the ground about just this topic, because I had done What's the Alternative, which I had hosted and produced for a couple of years, 52 half hours talk show on Varia Living TV, which no longer even exists. But when I went out there, I thought, well, my God, I've done 52 half hours. Surely I can parlay this into um, a series that's out in the field, not at a talk show. We go around the world. We explore very esoteric, interesting forms of healing. And it was unbelievably difficult to get it off the ground, not just because I'm not an expert in any of those particular particular disciplines, but because oh, I just had a little bit of a brain freeze. Oh, because it they wanted to turn it into like something that was like a comedy, you know, in order oh, they, they didn't want to do like a serious documentary. I was out there for a couple of years. I met with all of these different production companies and my very last pitch to a production company, they said, well, we think it's possible. We think there's a possibility here, but we'd like to get like a, like, like a comedian as a host like Will Ferrell or, and I was like, you're completely missing the point. It's not a comedy. Like, what are you talking about? And after that, I just thought, wow, I give up. They don't get it. They just, it, you know, they want to turn it into like high, you know, crazy entertainment. And I was trying to do something that was serious. So I just, I moved back to Boston. I was like, that's enough. I'm tired of this. Oh, it's so hard. Uh, especially it's, it's, that's one of the, I guess, one of those things where, like actors have to, to, to do in a, you have to be picked and only certain types of people with a certain mindset would do that. You have to be picked and like, you could do, you can, you can just start anything on YouTube right now. You're probably going to have zero views at first, but, but that mentality of having to be picked, it's not for everybody. No, it's, that's an excellent point. I have a good friend who's still out in Los Angeles right now, trying to make it as an actor and God, what a life it is. I mean, it, you have to really, really want it more than anything else in the world because there are so few opportunities. I'm not saying don't do it. If you have a burning passion, I'm all for following your passion, but it is good to have another way 
to make money that doesn't absolutely suck your soul dry because you're probably going to need other ways to make money. And I look at him, he's been out there for a while and here we've got COVID. And apparently, I mean, even now, sometimes I will send Mm -hmm. in self tapes for auditions. Well, everything's moved to self tapes. So now casting uh, directors are able apparently to see far more people Mm -hmm. than they used to see when you went to, when you physically went into their offices. So, so now the odds of being chosen are even, you know, even it's even more difficult. So yeah, it's a tough profession. Um, but I, I, I so admire people who are talented in that way. And I, I always had skills in that way, but I was never, it was never the only thing that I could do. I think yeah. sometimes act, certain actors are like, well, I don't know how to do anything else. And I was like, are you kidding? There's so many other things I could do and I need to make a living. You know? it's, it's pretty much the same. Uh, in, I'm, I'm, a, I'm in a very much the same spot. And I've, I've taken acting classes this January for one reason. Uh, this is just a basic training. I've never done acting before. If it's going to make me on camera better, great. If it won't, it won't. By the second class, I knew loud and clear, black and white, it is absolutely not for me. I'd have to shoot myself to do acting because I just don't have that interest. Like that you have, you have to have so much interest into drilling into that script and that story and that mindset and your feelings. And then you have maybe two minutes on camera. But like it, these people are like, I'm definitely not one of those people. Like that interest that you need to have is shocking. Like, and then, and then they say, oh, let's do another, another cut, another cut. It's crazy. Yeah. And the amount of emotional energy that it takes to be an actor. And one thing I have just learned about myself, and this is what happens as you get older, you start to just know who you are and you want to honor who you are. And I am by nature, much more of an introvert than I am an extrovert. So whether I'm hosting a television program or acting in a film, for me, it takes a lot of energy to do that. I'm just really drained by the end of the day. Whereas if I write all day, I'm not as exhausted. I, it's, it's quiet, I'm at home, it's peaceful. That's a better environment for me. So I can kind of go out into the world and do hosting and acting piecemeal once in a while and it's fun, but to do that every day, that is, it, it would be such a drain on me. Uh, because it does take so much. And I remember when I was in college, I was working on a play and the character in the play had an emotional breakdown on stage and she was pounding on the walls. I think she was an alcoholic and she was screaming and yelling. And, and I had to do that maybe five nights a week. And it was absolutely, and I, every time I felt like, oh my God, the energy that it's going to take tonight to like dig in there and find that place of emotional angst and pain and pull it up and have it be authentic and repeat it night after night. Whew, that takes a lot out of you. So much, so much. There's no space for anything else. Like, I don't know how people are able, like, it's like, this is it. This is it. Like you think about it on the way to addition, you think about it after addition. It's, it's, it's <laughs> takes such a commitment of your life. Well, that's why actors wake the successful ones, right? Make millions of dollars and they might only make one film a year and they work on it for a few months and the rest of the year, they're free and easy. <laughs> They're, you know, that's not to make, that's not to make it seem like they're not looking for other projects. Sure they are, but uh, it takes a lot out of you. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. Let's talk about alternative show, TV show that you produced. What was the, um, the main theme, the main punchline, the main idea? It was called What's the Alternative? And it was looking at um, natural alternative methods to heal very common conditions. So it was a talk show. And every show, like, I mean, how can I make it simple? Like there was one show about acupuncture for depression 
or yoga for insomnia or um, what else can I think of? Um, I did 52 shows. I should be able to remember a few more. I did one about naturopathic baby care, but usually right. I was looking at you know, whether it was a Qigong for um, someone who was dealing with uh, like a like heart, heart disease or something like mm -hmm. that. I was looking at a condition, whether it was depression or whether it was um, diabetes or something like that. What is a net, what's a natural way to treat that? And I would have on every show, I would have one guest who had a problem, who had had a problem, mm -hmm. who had sought out a conventional, conventional medicine, whether that's pharmaceutical or surgery or something like that to address the issue and had not found relief, but then mm -hmm. had tried some kind of alternative and had found, you know, had been cured or healed or whatnot through, through that alternative form of healing. It was, there were four blocks in the talk show. So I would interview the person with the problem. I would interview the expert. We go out in the field sometimes and shoot a shoot part of a story, or we do a demonstration in the studio demonstrating, maybe, maybe it was a form of movement mm -hmm. or a form of breath work. And then we do a wrap up at the end. And it was a tremendous amount of work because it was a startup, right? It was a startup yeah. uh, station, Berea Living TV. So I was hosting the show, but I was like also the PA. I mean, I was doing everything. I was finding every single guest, every topic. I was coordinating the travel of all the different people who were flying into Boston for the interviews. I was writing all the scripts. I was going in the field. I was producing the field segments, sitting with the editor, hosting the show. I mean, I was working easily 80 to 90 hours a week. Again, not something that you can sustain. It was not sustainable, but it was great. I was, it was a labor of love. Totally loved it. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of hours to, to put that together. Yeah. You can't do that unless you're really passionate about it. And I was passionate about it. I really, really felt like I was doing, um, I was kind of almost doing like a public service. I was giving people information that they probably would not have been able to find elsewhere that easily. And yeah. I was opening up people's minds to the possibility of another way of healing their bodies. It's always hard, especially now to sell these kinds of shows or these, that, this kind of content that doesn't directly either educational in, in, a, in a sense, like these are the steps for you to get more fit, or these are the steps for you to get more clients for your business. When it's more informational, there's just so many, so many other channels where if you don't have direct sales opportunity, then it's like, well, you know, we have Will Ferrell or we have somebody else. Right? <laughs> exactly. That's a good point. <laughs> how did you come up? How do you, um, Portland, how did you structure these episodes? Or do you have a certain idea of like, this is the skeleton I'm thinking about for all episodes or, and then, then these are the folks that we could find. And then let's, uh, let's see what we can do creatively with this specific episode. How did you approach the whole, uh, the whole structure of the show? The whole series? The whole series. What's the alternative? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I mean, honestly, problem solution, someone's coming in with a problem, someone had a health condition. And by the end of the show, we wanted there to be some kind of solution, not like not that it's necessarily a solution that's going to work for every single person who has the exact same condition, but right. we're offering an option, right? Um, so the first block of the show was interviewing that person about the problem. The second block of the show was offering up the solution. The third block of the show was demonstrating that solution, whether we went out in the field and shot a field piece or we demonstrated it in the studio. And the fourth block of the show was maybe some kind of like final tips and maybe showing the mm -hmm. expert's book and that kind of thing. So that's, that's how I structured it. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm. 
what's the difference between your opinion? You worked uh, with, I'm sure, other hosts, uh, lots of different kinds of hosts. The difference between somebody who's a good host the diff- and somebody who's really great. Authenticity. Really? I think that's a big one. Yeah. I mean, do you have the ability to be yourself? Are you, are you pretending to be cool? Are you pretending to be funny? Are you pretending to be interested? Or are you, or are you genuinely interested? So I think people who are good listeners and people who are authentic make good hosts. I mean, it's great if you're somebody like, you know, Ellen, who's also funny or you right. know, Oprah has this huge personality. But Oprah's also, um, she's genuine. I mean, she has a tremendous amount of enthusiasm, right? And she's an amazing public speaker. Um, but she also is just comfortable with herself. She's comfortable with who she yeah. is. And when people are comfortable with themselves, that's very attractive. That's very appealing. So um, I, I think those are the two things I would say. Be a good listener. Be interested in other people. And have the ability to be real. Hmm. There's this uh, girl. Uh, she's uh, I don't I don't I don't remember her name. She's one of the big YouTubers, like upcoming YouTubers. I think she's like under twenty. And uh, I did I looked at watched one of her breakdowns of her videos, how she does it. And her videos are literally filmed on either the phone or basic camera. And it could be she just laying in bed and saying, "Hey, <laughs> I don't feel like well, I don't feel like waking up today." And then just like long silences, but. A lot of people are watching and it's because she can hold the frame. That's the, was the phrase, quote unquote, hold the frame. And what does it mean? I think, I think it relates to, to what you just said. People are interested in, when you say hold the frame, meaning they're not going to put the phone down. They're interested in staying with her right. because they are drawn in by her, her, her authenticity. Yeah. She feels comfortable just being real. She's just holding the phone in bed. She doesn't, I mean, some people, so many people would feel so self-conscious doing that, right? (laughs) And when people are self-conscious, it's, it's not, it's not as appealing to watch, but when somebody's really, that's why great actors are so amazing. You know, they can, they can dive into a character and it's so, they can dive into the emotion so authentically. It's so real that you really feel like you're watching something that's really happening, even though it's a, an imaginary situation. So yeah, authenticity is powerful. I mean, I, I would like to think as I'm sitting here being interviewed by you that I'm just being myself, you know, as opposed to trying to sound like I know all the answers <laughs> and, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, I don't have all the of answers. Course. There's no one way to make it in this business. You know, I don't know. Try a lot of different things and be open and build relationships with people and be open to learning. And, but I, there's no one way. Yeah, it's also you look at the market. Like I was talking to to somebody, a coach, a business coach, and he says, "Look, look, he likes Venn diagrams. Do the Venn diagram. You're good at this. People want this. There's a certain marketing trend. Do a bunch of Venn diagrams. See what pops up. Then do you know just actual work and see what sticks, what works. And because there is, like you said, there is no. It's it's there's no way to figure it out." There's no one way to do anything. And in fact, that goes back to my show. What's the alternative? That's one of the reasons that I did the show. We think in this country that there's one way to treat an illness, you know, that there's, if you have cancer, this is what you have to do. This is the protocol. If you have this illness, these are the medications you have to take. I'm not saying that I'm completely against Western medicine. I'm just saying there are other ways, sometimes natural ways, sometimes far less expensive ways, sometimes far less invasive ways to treat your condition, you know? And so true. 
So true. And I, I could give an example, and, and this is specifically done in Canada. I think it's the same in the United States. So let's say a person right now has COVID. There's this, there's this idea or the government's decided that you shouldn't actually go and seek any treatment. The moment your family doctor realizes you have COVID, then you are absolutely almost quote unquote banned from seeing a doctor unless it's ER. And what's Which ER? It's like absolutely no sense. No right? sense. It makes no sense at all because then people are they offloaded the problem uh, onto people because like, if you're not a health expert, how do you know how much, like, do you have pneumonia or you don't, then you're like, well, I think I'm fine. And then in that last moment, when you're just about out of breath, you go to ER and they'll try to, to kind of pull you back to life, which is, doesn't make any sense. What if, and this is, I'm in Ukraine. I I'm from Ukraine in Eastern Europe. What they do, you have cough, you have COVID fine. There's a doctor. They will, they will examine you. They will listen, check your lungs, x-ray, CT scan, whatever's needed, and they'll give you the certain antibiotics if you need them. So you're never going to get to that position when you're about to die. And here's- I am so, I mean, this is, you know, I am so 100% with you on, on this. And this is almost a whole other conversation, right? Yes, but, it is. But, but, but when in the history of medicine have people ever been ill, gone to their doctor- and then been told, oh, go home. We don't have anything for you. Yeah. But if you're really, really sick and you can't breathe, that, then, then come back and see me. That's never happened before, I think, in the history of medicine. And there are other ways to treat it. But the powers that be, I think, don't want us to know what the way, those ways are. Those, those ways are. And I, it, like I said, it's a whole other conversation. And I have some opinions about that. <laughs> of course, of course. And, and this, is not a, this is not a necessarily COVID uh, episode, but, but, mm -hmm. uh, but, but the doctor's doctors made a choice to save people's lives. And that choice is like, if you're a firefighter, you're going to go into the, in, into the building because that's your job. So we have a certain job and we decided to do it. Doctor's job is to save people's lives, not to do phone consultation and say, stay home, take this medication. I haven't seen you, but just take it. Absolutely. Yep. Portland, this was, this was really great. Any parting thoughts, anything I haven't <laughs> asked you that uh, you wish I did, anything you want to leave the audience with, anybody who's creating video content, wants to write, wants to produce, do put their story out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I kind of said it before, but I guess I would say be open to the unknown. Be open to the fact that there is no one way to make it in this business. There's no one way to get your story out there. A lot of it really is building relationships. It's who you know. It's the, sometimes it's the people that are right around you that might know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who could help you. And so often, I mean, I've lived in different places. I worked in Vermont for a while. I lived in New York City, Boston, California, Los Angeles. So often I would plop down in a city not know anybody. And I would just start picking up the phone and I would get informational meetings with a news station. Maybe I would get meetings with a place where a production company and they would say, well, you know, we don't have any needs right now, but they would like the sound of me on the phone. You can come in. We'll talk to you a little bit about the business. And in those informational interviews with people, I would get names. I'd walk out of there with three or four or five names, or maybe I'd walk out with an idea that they yeah. hadn't, that I hadn't thought of before or, or the name of an organization that I could contact that I didn't know about. So it was always through people, meeting people, connecting with people that I got ideas and contacts that led me very often to the next job. So be open to expanding your social circle. 
I would say that's a big part of it as well as pursuing your passion and honing your skills. 100%, 100% agree. It's, it's a different world. It changes fast. You have Mm -hmm. to, uh, you have to be, you have to know people. Absolutely agree. Well, Portland, this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming, for sharing your knowledge. I'm sure our listeners will appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.